Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gail Muggle land by me, Liam Miller. He, him, he's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Back on the podcast for, I don't know, maybe fourth, fifth time, uh, is, it's probably less than that, is um, Emmy Kegler. <laughs> Emmy, welcome along. Liam, it's so good to be back. Yeah, I can't remember how many times it's been. Um, my wife was like, who are you chatting with? And I'm like, it's Liam. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, I think the last time was right at the start of the pandemic with Melissa. Um, Flora Bixler, um, and we did a whole thing about reading the Bible, and that was like real early pandemic. So, like, um, I don't know, maybe like April 2020. But, but you've been on before that as well. But that's that right. You yeah, know, that's, that's a blast. That's a while ago. But well, maybe there are some people who don't who don't know you uh, and haven't listened to an episode with you before. So, uh, for those who don't know, Emmy is a pastor, speaker, and author of One Coin Found: How God's Love Stretches to the Margins, and her most recent book that we're discussing today. All Who Are Weary, Easing the Burden on the Walk with Mental Illness, which is out with Broadleaf Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Emmy is also a yeah, pastor in Minneapolis uh, and a curator of uh, Queer Grace, which is a great uh, online encyclopedia, which people should check out, and lives in Minneapolis with her wife, Michelle, and their two dogs and cat. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Emmy, we had you on a while ago to talk about One Coin Found, which is an excellent book. And if people are watching this video, can see over your shoulder and should definitely check out. Um, and and this is your second book. And I guess uh, the, the the question is, I guess, what led you to this book? What was the the impulse? That you're like, yep, this is the one I have to do and have to do now uh, as as book number two. Uh, was that something? Was did you run to it or were you dragged to it? I guess is the <laughs> maybe part of the question. Yeah, um, in the midst of finishing the first book, One Coin Found, and right at the end, I was sending all these other book ideas to my editor, you know, as I'm finishing the final chapters and, and tidying up the manuscript, I'm saying, Lisa, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's, you know, I, I want to write about this, I want to, you know, write about that. She said, okay, just finish the first book. <laughs> and most of those ideas have sort of fallen by the wayside, because what I paid attention to was how people responded to One Coin Found. Mm. And what really left an impression on me was the way people responded to how I talked about mental illness. Um, I've lived with depression for uh, 22 years now and social anxiety for a little over a decade. And just talked very openly about, especially about depression, since it's really been, you know, a lifelong companion at this point. And people responded to that in a way that I found very... um, Honestly, not disturbing, but sort of just saddening in the sense that they were, people were saying, I've never heard someone else talk about their mental illness, or I've never heard someone talk about depression like this. And I thought, oh, okay. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of people who are experiencing mental illness in its many facets within Christian practice, but aren't hearing someone speak compassionately about it which is not, you know, terribly dissimilar from the first book's focus being, you know, people are experiencing all these different dimensions of being LGBTQIA within the church and not hearing compassion spoken to it. So I proposed a book on mental illness, but specifically written from the perspective of a patient and the perspective Mm -hmm. of someone who is a pastor, but not a professional, uh, not a professional therapist, not even, you know, a PhD theologian, but rather someone who's trying to make sense of what it means to live with mental illness and Christian faith in an everyday life. I signed the contract before the pandemic began. And I believe the manuscript was originally due in May, 2020. And I said to Lisa, 
uh, my editor for this book as well, probably within the first three or four weeks of the pandemic, I said, I, I don't think you're getting this book <laughs> on time. She said, that's fine. And so we just kept having to push the due date back. And finally I said to her, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to get this book to you. I can't write right now. I'm, you know, we're having a really hard time as a family. Um, my wife is very much a, a social introvert and so really seeks that connection time with people. And we were very much cut off from that, obviously. I mean, as everyone was, um, of course we were supplementing it with zoom and with as many cautious meetings as possible, but it was really difficult for us. Um, and so I just said, I, I don't think I'm going to do this. And Lisa said, can you give it one more try? If we put you on this writing schedule and had the due date on this day, could you give it one more try? And I said, yes. And I did hit that date. Um, so the book came out then just uh, November of 2021. So we're now in sort of this 18, 19 month stretch of a global pandemic that when it was first introduced to us before I'd even signed the contract was supposed to be mm, six weeks tops. Yep. And one of the things that my uh, forward author, Nora McInerney noted was the title of the book is all who are weary. And that was meant to be an encompassing term for people who experience mental illness or who care for someone who lives with mental illness. And now it essentially feels like it's for all 7 billion people across the globe. <laughs> we are all very tired. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, I know. It's, it's, it's yes, it's, it's kind of, it's timing is, like, obviously made it very hard in the in the process and the production of it, but, but is, you know, it made it all the more probably welcomed in that as many people have had to, you know, deal with so much of this or, or so much has come to the surface that, you know, as I think a lot, a lot of people identified was like, all the structures I had kind of, whether, um, you know, thoughtfully or just kind of habitually developed around me that helped me cope, gone, um, makes it impossible to ignore that uh, maybe I'm not as okay or gone as okay as I as I was convincing myself I was. Exactly, uh, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I think we've gone through these different, you know, ups and downs. I think some people individually and some of us, you know, sort of collectively, uh, it's based on different countries and different continents, you know, whether or not your particular locale is handling or not handling things well. But we go through these different ups and downs individually and communally in dealing with the pandemic. And yeah. I, th I think only the, the most cynical but realistic uh, of scientists, doctors, and people paying attention knew it was going to last this long. And mm. that's been very weary making for very yes. many people. Yeah. So you mentioned as you, as you took about, you took a particular posture with the book, right? Like you're writing as a patient, as a pastor, and you knew very clear up front, like I'm not coming at this as, as a psychologist or, or a therapist, and I'm not coming at this with like, here's the one, the one fix here, are the magic words, I'll wave them over you and, and it's all good. Um, and I think that's really, you know, obviously very vital. Um, I, I was reflecting as I was, I was reading through those early sections of when I was in university chaplaincy, we began to make kind of connections where there was a group on campus for like folks with mental health issues and, and disabilities, like kind of like a collective kind of thing. And like there was like a lot of wariness from that group when we first started to make kind of overtures about how we could maybe connect and support and work with them because I think there was this sense of, well, you're coming from, you know, Christians are coming, they're going to just tell us to, pray it all away or ignore it all or what have you. And it took a while for us to kind of basically just show up and be nice um, to, to earn a little trust to then start to work. So 
you know, as you were thinking about this of trying to write, you know, from that response from one coin found and then starting to write from this um, compassionate but um, and personal aspect, I guess, you know, there's a wide audience for the book in both folks yeah, who, are, who are still in the church and struggling and not, not hearing that and those who have heard all the wrong things and are way away from it and are like, I, I, the last thing I want to hear about mental illness is from a person who's a pastor. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, talk. I'm curious a bit about how that, you know, shaped you know, what you were writing, were there times that you had to kind of, you wrote something like, oh, actually, I need to walk that back, or were there times you had to push yourself, actually, I've got to say a little more here, mm-hmm. you know, you got to, got to actually, you know, put something out, you know, how did that shape what you were doing? Yeah, one of the difficulties is wanting very much to offer some kind of concrete answer, because mm-hmm. the difficulty is I, I never want to take people through a rejection of, you know, you're right, you know, the church says, you can just pray it all away, and that's clearly not true. And then there needs to be something to follow that, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. otherwise I'm just meeting people in their despair, which is important, mm. but I don't think necessarily you need a book to do that. Um, yeah. I think, it could be, mm. you know, that could be narrated down to an Instagram post or a TikTok. Uh, and so what's the sort of, what's the arc and what's the next step into something else? And I wanted to keep it very closely tied to scripture because that's mm. really sort of the playground that I find myself in, but that required some reinterpretation and very careful reinterpretation of scripture because I also was not comfortable writing a book that said, okay, we're going to look backwards in scripture and say, you know, Job clearly had depression, so-and-so clearly had anxiety, this person had schizophrenia, because I'm not a doctor, I'm not Mm. a, a psychiatrist, I'm not anyone who's licensed to make those kind of diagnoses, and I also think they're very generally speaking, I think it's very dangerous to make any kind of mental health diagnosis, which is all about your internal mm. mechanisms, only based on, you know, very tertiary evidence <laughs> that's been, you know, passed down over yeah. thousands of years, and translated and retranslated. And I, you know, that, that puts me in, in disagreement with some theologians who will go, you know, look through history or scripture and say things like, well, Martin Luther, you know, clearly had bipolar disorder because he has these periods of great creativity and excitement which look like mania and then he also has these great periods of depression and uh despair which is you know this you know periods of um of uh of depression Mm. um and i I didn't want to put myself in those positions but i did still want to make connections with Mm. scripture or with history or with christian theology that still made that that second half of the sentence of yes, yes, it's not enough to just say you can pray it away, but then what's next? Mm. Um, and so each chapter, I try to do that. Uh, some chapters I think I did more successfully than others, but that's that's always that was one of the driving forces for me in crafting the book. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. So so you start with um, sin, which is a, a you know a handy place probably to begin. Um, uh, you know, kind of talking a bit about how you know as you kind of established that's maybe one of the characteristic ways mental health has been and is still characterised by the church is within that kind of doctrinal loci of that, or it's maybe a test or maybe it's something, you know, or demonic. Or, or, um, and I think, you know, there's two really important moves I think that you're making in that chapter in the sense of both acknowledging, you know, the which I guess the pandemic has helped us also see, the sociopolitical aspect of mental illness um, that, that, you know, Poverty, sexism, homophobia, racism, think you know, systemic inequalities contribute, exacerbate all that. Um, and that also, I guess, so that you know, that 
can be seen as sinful and in, and then as sinful and then impacting it and then also that kind of response that looks at struggle and calls it personal failure is also you know maybe where the sin is so so I'm, I'm just curious to talk a bit about that about maybe I guess that kind of relocation of sin so they're not saying hey sin talk is actually we should totally throw that out the window we should never utter it in the same sentence as as a question about mental illness but we should but where we are thinking about it and locating it in that sentence um, is important right exactly I think the I think the sin chapter ends with the question of what if it's the way the church has responded to mental illness that's a sin mm -hmm. rather than you know mental illness itself and the symptoms um why don't we look at the way that the church still participates in a in a very sick society? Um, why don't we look at the way that trauma affects uh, symptoms of mental illness? Why can't we look at those things and the abuse that is characterized, you know, that that creates trauma? Why can't we look at that as sinful rather than putting that sort of burden both for repentance and for healing on only the person who's experiencing? Mm. what are often very disabling symptoms in mental illness, mm. which is obviously, you know, I, I move multiple times in the book into talking about the importance of medication because for some people, the experience of mental illness is uh, one that is a chemical imbalance. Um, that's true for me. So I have a, a baseline essentially that I need a certain, um, I I function best and I'm able to deal with other manifestations of my mental illness symptoms when I'm also on medication. So I'm much better at therapy when I do that. I'm much better um, at self-reflection when I'm on a medication. And we know that that's true for a lot of people that live with mental illness. And so first of all, treating mental illness as the second half of it, as an illness that can require pharmaceutical or other medical interventions is key and so rejecting the teachings of, um, you know, churches that say, oh, well, you don't, you know, you don't need Prozac because you have Jesus, uh, rejecting those teachings as sinful was, was very mm. core to, to the work and, and not just to the first chapter, but the whole of it. Yeah, totally. There's something else I wanted to ask about in that first chapter, which I think is important. So you talk a bit about speaking about mental illness as someone who's queer, um, mm. as being, you know, maybe somewhat sometimes fraught ground, particularly in church spaces, given that it's like, see, that's evidence of what we've been saying all along, that that, you know, that this is this kind of pathology and this this problem. Um and 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 just yeah, how tricky it is to kind of I guess navigate that space where it's, you know, it's it's vital to talk about, but you also, you know, you don't want to be, you know, having someone warp what you're saying into their own talking points. Um and, and yeah, how you how you know how you felt that you know given I think as you say, you know, um, it, it, queerness itself was on the list of, of mental illnesses, but fifty years ago or less. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I'm just curious about that and how 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 you found trying to navigate that and you know the responsibility to talk about it, even though it can be, you know, miss, miss other folks can then misuse it. Right, and I think the the example of homosexuality um, and gender dysphoria as categories with, that you find within the DSM-5 and how that's been shifting in the past mm. 50 years, you know, that different ways of understanding sexuality and gender identity have changed from either, you know, mental illnesses of their own or, you know, more clarified into what are the specific dimensions of um, those, those categories of sexual, sexual orientation or gender identity that then 
you know, in certain areas end up uh, still categorized within the DSM-5. So for example, um, cross-dressing or being transgender is no longer recognized as a mental illness, but gender dysphoria, the, you know, very aggressive discomfort with one's physical body mm. uh, as a symptom often of, or as a, as a, you know, a related fact of being transgender is often it's still found within um, diagnostic mm. practices. In fact, for some people that actually becomes a standard of care and that you have to, to have gender confirming surgery. So surgery that uh, aligns your physical body more with the uh, internal self in gender identity. Uh, to have that, you have to have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Mm. So you can't simply, you, you have to prove that you are very mentally unwell, which then means sometimes you have to exacerbate the symptoms of gender dysphoria and experience them to a higher degree in order to sort of be considered to deserve gender confirming mm. surgery. So there's some fascinating sort of ways that the psychological and medical um, and, you know, our sort of communal, social, cultural, philosophical understandings of bodies and sexuality all play together. And one of the things that I tried to highlight in the book is that we're still very much in a moving target kind of phase of both understanding ourselves psychologically, but also understanding human sexuality. Uh, I didn't talk about this in the book, but when you look into sort of the ravages of Nazi Germany, that one of the things we don't often hear about in our textbooks and elementary schools is that they destroyed a lot of really forward moving work around sexuality and gender identity that was taking place in the 20s and mm. 30s and they just burnt it all to the ground and so we're essentially recreating a lot of that same work mm. um we could have been in a very different position i think um it's it's very interesting the way people will pick up on different threads of psychological or scientific reality and use those you know, weaponize them against mm. other aspects of psychological or scientific reality. Like, okay, and I will, you know, treat your anxiety as real, but it's a cause of your sexuality. And it's like, no, 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 you can't. You, yeah. um, mm, that's not, that's, that's cheating. <laughs> like, that's, you can't pick and choose like, oh, this part of the, you know, this part of the scientific community mm. I'll trust. And this part I'm going to reject um, when you have, you know, the consensus that you do within psychological associations. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that's really helpful. Um, so after seeing you turn to prayer, uh, and I promise we're not working through every chapter. I just these these are good ones to start with. Um, I think prayer is 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 so helpful because okay, we already talked about the idea of like maybe we're trying to get away from this idea that prayer is a thing. You know, that's the the fix all. But I'm you know I'm sure for anyone or for not anyone, I'm sure for lots of folk who are listening who maybe have they agree with that totally. When things are really bad there's definitely parts of you that really want to be able to pray in the old way, right? Pray in the way that you, you were sure prayer once worked. Um, even as you kind of, part of another voice in your head is like, this isn't how we're meant to do this. Well, this isn't what this is for. Um, so, you know, it's, it's this complex thing of, you know, which I think is really why it's so important that you, you, you address it in the way that you do. Um, and I thought this little passage, I'll just read out a little bit. Uh, here we go. Um, was really helpful, and then we can jump into a bit of a conversation about about where you go with prayer. So, this is you're talking about what if if prayer is not a shopping list or a vending machine, uh, what could it be? I experience prayer as the terrifying opportunity to open myself to the God who made the universe, who weeps over the sparrow that falls, who counts every hair on my head, 
whose heart breaks every minute for how long humanity, written in the divine image, still resists the eternal call to love one another. I am neither too small to come before God nor too big to imagine all my wants are of importance. Prayer sends me to my knees in need of mercy and forgiveness and lifts my head in joyous celebration. I cannot transform my weary mind in a twinkling, but it can begin the binding of my broken heart. And so often that is more than enough. Which is just very good writing, Eddie. So well done. (laughs) That's just really lovely. Um, but yeah, so so talk to a bit about prayer and that, like, you know, often that pull with within ourselves, you know, especially if you've done that, maybe that work of, as you say, moving from that very first stage. But, you know, things are still tough. <laughs> right. Um, it's funny because I, I start the chapter with a reference to this, you know, a youth group kid writing Justin Bieber hair on a prayer list and how that sort of tore me <laughs> up inside. And one of the things that happened to me when I was in youth group was this radical redefinition of prayer that sent me down, um, you know, at least at least turned the the branch of the tree that would grow inside me theologically to the point of understanding prayer is not just a shopping list, but prayer is this, you know, this this divine, there this reconnection with the divine and a realignment of the self. Mm-hmm. And that happened by watching the TV show Dawson's Creek. <laughs> which I recognize I'm dating myself by that. So I'm um, 30, I'm 36. And uh, so I'm a dead on millennial and grew up with Dawson's Creek. And at one point, the grandfather of one of the characters is very sick. And this particular character is like the bad girl, right? Um, played by <laughs> Michelle Williams. She did so fantastic. And um, really everyone in that show is just lovely. Anyway, focus. Um, <laughs> grandmother is you know, praying uh, about her husband of, you know, they've been together 60 some years and whatever it is. And this granddaughter says to her, why are you praying? Um, like prayer can't be like your prayers can't change God. And the grandmother very tenderly turns to her and says, darling, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. And like, I was very churched. And went, you know, heard probably at least two sermons a week at that point in my life because I was going on Sundays and also Wednesday evenings. And like, that's one of the things that really just re like, like started that turning of my mm. mind around like, what, what is prayer really for? Which I'm sure, you know, I don't, I don't know if the, the writers for Dawson's Creek really thought they were going in to make like this great big theological claim or, you know, whatever it might be. But um th- for me, there was that sense of like, prayer is not just for me. Prayer is for me in the sense that it is meant to change myself and my relation to the world around me. So not just, you know, to, to call me to repentance or salvation in that, in that sense of change or, you know, a, a, a sort of on earth sanctification process mm. in a Calvinistic way, but rather to understand that, um, part of the fulfillment of prayer is each human's re-engagement with the world and willingness to transform it in, you know, each little sphere that we have access to. Mm, yes. No, thank you for that. I think that's yeah, a very helpful way of, 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 of reconfiguring it for us. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping to like another point in the book. So thanks to Teen Vogue and the Chicks, um, gaslighting is, is you know, a, a term much more familiar for a lot more folks, even though it's obviously existed for, for longer, but it, it, it's more familiar. And it's, you know, sometimes maybe misused a bit or, 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 or just used maybe more expansively than it's meant to. Um, but but you, you draw it out in your chapter on trauma in a really helpful way in, in looking at the way, 
you know, churches in, in, in their attribution of things to being part of God's will is a kind of, you know, ecclesial gaslighting. So, so I, I thought that would be a really helpful thing that, to talk about in the way, yeah, that this kind of, yeah, how, how this is functioning in those spaces, how you see that at play, and, and I guess maybe what we can be trying to say instead. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think, you know, gaslighting has essentially taken on this anytime someone who's got any kind of authority over you lies to you, which to some, I mean, it's, it's, it falls under the category of lying, but it, I describe in the book the, the movie that it originates mm. from and sort of the way it's used in psychological terms, especially in talking about systems of abuse. So it is about, you know, integrating within systems of power, but it's specifically about someone who's intentionally changing a situation around you to try to make you feel like you've lost your grip on reality. Mm. And so I don't think everybody that says, you know, well, if you just pray harder, you'd be fine about your mental illness is, is gaslighting or what I call in the book, God willing, uh, you yeah. know, ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical gaslighting. Um, I don't think everyone's doing that, but this sense of people who are in power within Christianity, hearing the witness of people who have experienced trauma, especially when we think about people who've experienced physical or sexual trauma within the confines of the church or by a leader within it. And then to say, you know, well, this was God's will and to mm. refuse to have any other interpretation on a situation in which one human being that had power hurt another human being. That's when I think we're really, that's when we're talking about ecclesi ecclesiological gaslighting of you, you have power and you are turning the situation that is clearly abusive and traumatic into mm -hmm. we can't have that kind of discussion because it erodes the power within the church or it's uncomfortable or whatever it is you know oh but mm -hmm. he's but he's a good bible study leader whatever um and the the difficult thing of course is that there's not really another possible response for the church to take without taking trauma seriously and taking mm -hmm. trauma seriously does mean acting it does mean removing people from power who have abused that power. It does mean actually bringing those allegations to light rather than keeping them behind closed doors mm -hmm. so that other people can also come forward. Because one of the things that happens, we know, in trauma experiences is when someone is able to witness to the trauma done to them and be heard and recognized for it, that is an act of healing. You see mm -hmm. symptoms of mental illness, you know, because trauma can come with all sorts of symptoms. Um, you see those symptoms eased. And so if we create the system where like, well, it just happened to this one person or, okay, you know, I don't want to upset other people by bringing it forward, blah, blah, blah. We just kind of, you know, we'll just release him from his work and not talk about it. And I am using he because unfortunately much of the abuse within church systems is perpetuated by cis men. Um, not always, but unfortunately great, great numbers. And so when we, when we think that by maintaining secrecy, we're keeping people's confidence in the church, mm. we're, we're risking the spiritual transformation and healing of those who've experienced abuse over against mm. the others. And mm. I understand why churches do it. I really do, especially in the past 19 months in the pandemic, I've gone like, okay, I mean, I understood it before, but I really understand now why some people want to have absolute authority over their church. Like, I get it. I would really like to put myself, and I think you and I had this discussion, I think for maybe Melissa and I had this discussion, or we had it even back with OneCoin Found, 
of like, I understand the desire to be totally authoritarian and say, you know, like I am God's messenger and everything that comes from God's, from my word, my mouth is God's word. Um, I understand that completely. I understand why people want that kind of unity and that kind of, you know, consensus of thought because it's so much easier to just be in in charge of people um, rather than, you know, have all this stupid, like listening and attending to people's (laughs) actual needs and conversation. Um, And it, it was, it was really frustrating for me during the pandemic of like, I have to somehow attend to people within generational groups or um, access groups who don't find online worship engaging or Mm. compelling, who don't find online ways of connecting compelling. And these people would say to me, like, I'm not happy about your online worship options. And I was just like, okay, you know, you need to just get with the program. Like, I don't really Mm. care, which of course was not really appropriate to say out loud. And the more I've engaged with what they've said, the more I've had to go, okay, we do have to think about, you know, for people who are not comfortable with the internet, you know, I'm a, I'm mm. functionally a digital native as a millennial, you know, you tell me, okay, if you want to participate in worship, you got to go on Instagram. I'm like, not a problem. Got an Insta. But for people who um, are not comfortable with computers, who don't even have, for example, like don't even know how to work the camera on their iPad. Mm. Um, that's a really disabling experience so all that to say um you know the the sense of how how do you account for and witness to the myriad needs in a congregation and there's sometimes that desire to make things disappear Mm -hmm. um in a form of gaslighting to keep people sort of unified and the truth is that humans have the capacity when we are well led and well equipped to look at a substantial amount of information and make shared decisions mm. rather than having one person at the top decide this is too dangerous for the church and we have to eliminate it. Um, the difficulty is, of course, you know, getting those opportunities for education and training in the same way that, you know, getting people to understand when they see a photoshopped photo that it's not real. Yeah, yes, yes. Oh, no, indeed. Oh, thank you for that. So, like, this is obviously, you know, this comes, this book emerges from your lived experience. And it's something you've been thinking about plenty in the past. And, and, and But yet, you know, this is probably also the time of the most in-depth, prolonged thinking on it that you've done. And I'm curious if, like, in the process of it, did you have any of your own, like, aha moments or, or something clicking in a way? Or, or just maybe even just finding a resource in the tradition or scripture that you didn't expect to find that, that has personally been um, impactful? Or, or was it more just a series of, like, Oh yeah, I really should be doing that. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I did. Sure. All right. All right, Amy, settle down. (laughs) Yeah, there were definitely, like, I know some of the hallmarks of things that improve my mental health and, you know, every single time I'd write about them, I was just like, yeah, okay. I know, I know, I know. Um, (laughs) Like I, there's a couple of times I describe, you know, things that I've tried to build into my, my daily practices to encourage my mental health. Like I'm not, I, I have a sticker on my, um, French press that says breakfast, breakfast before coffee, because I do substantially better when I have food in my system before I have coffee. Um, have I been doing that during the pandemic? No. Have I been making twice as much coffee and then going like, why do I feel sick and jittery? Um, so there's, you know, there's very much a doctor heal thyself, uh, happening in some of the chapters of the book. I think the thing that was really, um, 
the chapter that was hard to write in a lot of ways, and I finally just had to get down to the the very bare bones for it, was the chapter on suicide. Mm. Because as I talk about in the chapter, I don't know how to talk about suicide in a, in a way that is salvific. Mm. Because for some people, if you tell them, you know, if somebody, somebody's experiencing suicidal ideation and you tell them, if you commit suicide, you're going to go to hell, which is a, a very, very common teaching in many parts of Christianity. Uh, that person experiencing a moment of suicidal ideation might be afraid of eternal damnation long enough to get the help they need. Mm. And to continually to say to people, especially people who live with chronic suicidal ideation or repeat suicidal ideation or who are survivors of Mm. um, suicide or survivors uh, left behind by people who have completed suicide, to say to them, suicide sends you to hell Mm. forever is not salvific. Mm. And I kept trying to figure out like, how do I write this? How do I write this? I can't. And finally I just got down on, you know, sort of, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm trying to translate theologically through a series of levels. And finally, I just tried to get down and look an ordinary person right in the eye and be like, look, I don't know how to tell you this because here's the problem I have as a pastor. Mm. Um, and that was really helpful for me because it's a good reminder of not, uh, not assuming too much on the part of the, of my readers, but also understanding that I can be very transparent with them. I don't have to do, you know, multiple drafts and try to sort of hide things behind other metaphors and similes and and good Mm. writing, but rather just to sometimes get down and very much look them eye to eye and say like, I don't know how to do this. And I'm Mm. just going to walk with you right through my not knowing. Mm. Yeah. That's, and and that's obviously a very helpful thing for, for pastors to be, to be thinking about and learning for for those, and and not just pastors, but but many folk. Um, That's very helpful. So you mentioned how w- w- the reaction to OneCoin found was, oh, wow, I have not heard this spoken about or spoken about compassionately. And so, you know, now there's this, right? There's all who are weary, which, which everyone should go and check out. What would you like to see, I guess, maybe come next, right? Like, you know, because obviously one book isn't doing the whole thing. Um, you know, from, from Christians who are writing and other things like that, like, you know, are there other areas you're like, as you were researching, you're like, oh, look, I can't tackle that, right? Or, or it's going to get a brief mention, but really that needs its own whole book or this chapter that is great, but this needs its own whole book. And what are some things that you'd love to see, you know, and whether it's you or whether you're just putting the call out to others who are going to think um, think about this, are there, were there things you kind of came across, you're like, that really needs, that's what needs to happen next. Next 10 years, I'll, you know, these X amount of things really need proper addresses that, you know, in a, in a compassionate and helpful way. Yeah, I see it already happening. Um, mm. And I, I just think we need a stronger body of work around it. And also that, you know, distillation down from scholastic levels and into, yeah. you know, from, it's not that all theological ideals f- flow from the academy into pastors and then into lay people, but that is a traditional mm. trajectory for that water to flow. Um, so I'd love to get it down to the point at which people just understand the concept um, on a very base level, and that would be neurodivergence within Christianity. 
Um, to the best of my understanding, although I have some um, some related symptoms, um, I'm not. I don't fall within the category of neurodivergence as far as being ADD or autistic, which is really where we see that term come most into play. Mm. Some people also use neurodivergence for mental illness, but as far as sort of a communal consensus on that, I didn't see one in the research, and so I didn't include that term as a mm. you know an umbrella term for mental illness. Because people who live with ADD, ADHD, or autism spectrum disorder, or, or just autism, um, as a lot of people use the term, don't experience their symptoms as one of a disorder or an illness in the way that we categorize mental illness. It's a, it's a mm. processing difference and an interpretation difference of the world and, and its stimuli. And so I would love to see more concrete conversations um, at the at the layperson level about how do we make churches more appropriate for neurodivergent people. Mm. And when I say appropriate, appropriate or more, I mean more welcoming is the shorthand term. You know, what do we? How do we talk about the ways that church is accessible or inaccessible for people with um, processing sensory processing disorders mm. or social disorders or um, you know basic disabilities that we think of that we are sort of more visible, um, you know, physical disabilities, uh, handicaps, um, et cetera. So that's essentially two categories. I think Mm. some really excellent work is already being done around them. I just would really like it to be um, sort of where I see a lot of literature around acceptance of gay marriage. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's like people in the church are generally like, okay, I understand what the arguments are for this. Mm. Now, does everybody agree on it? No, 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 no. But like, I have not in a very long time encountered someone who went, oh, you're gay and a Christian? I've never heard of that. Mm. A lot of people are still like, and and that's not to say, some people still don't hear it, um, but it's at least permeated the culture enough. I don't think that we've yet had conversations around how do we talk about the sensory things that we're trying to do in and how we make those not um Mm. how how we make those accessible or engage you know make it possible for people to engage with when they have sensory disorder uh sensory processing differences how do we um talk about the ways that people interact or the ways that people commit to volunteer work or the you know who shows up for bible study without taking into account different information processing um practices and i think when we get to that point we will that's where I see a lot of work needing to go. I don't think that's work. If it's work that I'm going to do, I'm only going to do it as sort of a curator of other people's experiences, um, possibly because it's difficult for, for example, for people with ADHD to complete projects periodically, although there's hyper-focus involved with that, so they certainly can. Um, But I'm not, that's not my experience. So as far as, so far I've written books that are centered in, or at least begin from my experience. What is it like to be a queer Christian? What is it like to be a Christian with mental illness? Um, I would not want to write a book on what is it like to be a Christian with neurodivergence because I don't have mm. that. Um, but I would be happy to support the work of others who do. Mm. Um, as far as what's next for me, I have no idea. Um, I keep, you know, I'm. It's uh, we're we're just before Christmas as we're recording, and I'm trying to put myself in a space of not creating for a little bit to just yep. sort of let the, the well fill back up. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not writing down ideas every other day. 
<laughs> no, that's great. You deserve definitely deserve a, a, a break, you know, pandemic and everything and book <laughs> and everything. So, but no, we all await uh, more from you because you're so wonderful and, and everything you write has been a, a gift and a joy for for us. So I really thank you for your time, folks. Please go and get All Who Are Weary, Easing the Burden on the Walk with Mental Illness, as I said, our Broadleaf books, but you can get it wherever you get a book. Um, they'll, they'll send it right to your door. If you, if you order, you know, this is going to come out very soon, Emmy, the kind of next week. So, folks, if you're really active, really, you know, get that phone, get that tab open right now, you might be able to order it and get it delivered in time for Christmas, you know. Right. Run, um, run, don't walk. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Buy it for all your friends. Bye for your secret Santa. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, uh, Emmy, thank you so much for joining us. Anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to uh, in this moment? Ooh, um, there's so many other really good books coming out, so I'm not going to highlight any of them just because I feel like I'm going to do injustice. I'm going to forget someone. <laughs> um, but I do just want to say um, many, many thanks to so many people who've been supportive, including people who heard me first on your podcast, Liam, and have kept up with my work. Um, okay. It's just... Um, and the work that you do uh, with podcasting and in so many other places is such a gift. So thank you for <laughs> inviting me back. It's it's truly an honor. Well, it's, it's, it's always a joy to have you and uh, have a, a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, folks, thanks for all for listening and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>